Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the and served as a major in the Royal Corps of Signals, and to Sean Howlett, a member and a reservist who will be joining the operations team of CF Armed Forces. We hope you enjoy this episode. Our first guest today is James Sunderland, MP. James was educated at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford before attending the University of Birmingham for his undergraduate degree and King's College London for a Master's. In 1993, he was commissioned into the British Army from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and served for 26 years as a regular officer in the Logistics Corps, only leaving in 2019 to stand as the parliamentary candidate in Bracknell, where he spent much of his adult life. In his own words, during his career, he's lived in snow holes on the NATO northern flank in Norway, run complex army change programmes, delivered humanitarian operations in Africa, overseen theatre drawdown operations in Iraq, and planned the multinational contribution to Afghanistan with the Omani, Danish, Estonian and Macedonian governments. He most recently served as the commander of the Army Engagement Group. To start us off, uh, you, I, I know you from the candidate circuit, um, uh, those, those sort of the heady days of, uh, of May 2019 when it was all up for grabs. Um, could, you, could you talk us a bit, could you talk us through your candidate journey prior to being elected? And then um, can you tell us a bit about what it's been like, uh, you know, working as an MP up until this point? Well, James, um, thank you for the invitation to come on. It's a great privilege for me. And uh, if I can be of any assistance at all to members of the armed forces hoping to get into politics, I'm very delighted to do so. I, I was very lucky um, in the sense that I got a plum seat um, last year. Uh, I am local to Bracknell. Uh, and um, when I received the call from the association chairman, a fantastic chap called Jerry Barber, and asked me whether I wished to stand for uh, Bracknell, of course, I grabbed... The opportunity with two hands and um, here I am now six months later um, fairly settled now as a member of parliament and enjoying it thoroughly but just to bore you for a second on the journey I, I've always had the interest in politics um, at university I was fairly active um, you then join the armed forces and, and and for that period of time you're not really allowed to be active because of Queen's regulations the army is an apolitical organization um, but I retain the interest um, joined the party I helped uh, Sir Gerald Howarth in Aldershot in 2010, 2015, um, and got quite involved locally, but behind the scenes. It would have been quite wrong for me as a serving member of the armed forces to be overtly involved. So I was quite careful at the time, um, doing what I could without any sort of form of embarrassment. And, um, and then I did my, parliament, my parliamentary assessment board in 2017. Um, Having left command of the 27 Regiment, I made the decision there and then to go for it. Uh, I went through the, the process quite quickly, got through. And then once you're on the Conservative list, you're free to apply for opportunities when they materialise. And uh, I, I realised at the beginning of 2019 that it was now or never. Uh, and then through a process of talking to people, um, getting out and about, getting on the circuit, getting CVs around, um, I was very lucky in that uh, I made contact with a number of chairmen who were very good enough and very kind enough to consider my CV. That's fantastic, James. I mean, it, it, you, you make it sound very, um, very straightforward, 
Um, but of course, it, it hasn't been. I mean, were you involved in local politics at all, or did you go straight in from your experience with um, uh, Gerald Howarth? You know, was that were you were you always destined to go into national politics, or did you ever look at a, 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 a sort of smaller local level? Well, I think um, you know it was always going to be that jump um, because having served in the armed forces, of course, there was no issue with my public service, so I had that tick in the box. Um, and it would have been quite difficult um, as a member of the army to be a local councillor because of course you move around it's very difficult in that you can't commit to things um, you are at short notice um, liability for deployments um, i hadn't deployed since 2009 when i was in iraq so i knew that i was you know well inside harmony guidelines and you can't commit to a council and you can't stand for election if you're serving um, so the simple answer is no um, so I knew at that point in time that if an opportunity ever was to materialise, it would be on the national circuit. Um, and, and of course, Boris Johnson's decision to go for a snap election uh, at the back end of last year created lots of opportunities because it was a big clear out um, of Parliament. A lot of MPs either defected to other parties or, or left, um, I think bruised and broken by Brexit. And um, it's no coincidence that in December 2019, when Boris Johnson won the election, that there were 109 brand new Conservative MPs. So it was the right time for me. The opportunities were there, and I was lucky enough to grab one. And and speaking of those 109, you know, go, going back to the, the sort of the, the question that I posed earlier, you know, how's it been? What's it been like? Are you are you a, a are you a kind of a unified cohort as some of the papers have, have kind of been insinuating or you know are you all bringing different specialisms you know how, how do you think the government is has handled uh, getting brexit done and now of course we're into into the, the coronavirus pandemic you know what what's it been like what have you what have you found has been interesting what's been as as expected what's been different you know what have been the challenges um, can you talk us through that yeah, I mean, I'm quite institutionalised by nature, as most of us are in the armed forces. Um, but of course, Parliament is a very different kind of institution. When you walk in for the first time as a new member of Parliament, uh, it is quite daunting. Um, the history of the place, the smells, um, you see it on TV, but when, of course, you're there, it, it, is, quite, it is quite overwhelming. Um, there was a huge sense of camaraderie from the beginning, a great sense of euphoria because of the election victory. Uh, and uh, it was very new, but uh, you know, if I tell you that I left the army effectively in six days, um, I think it's a record. Wow! I was. I mean, uh, and, and how long? How long did you serve for? Well, twenty-seven years. Um, <laughs> so I was. I was selected by Bracknell on Friday, the eighth of November. Um, got through the final, got selected, and then I had to tell the army the following day that I'd been selected as a political candidate. Um, and applied for immediate PBR, a premature voluntary release. Um, and of course, um, there were a few raised eyebrows when they asked me, when do you want to go? And I said, well, now. <laughs> said immediately. Yeah. Now. Um, and um, anyway, I had a call from the Manning branch in Glasgow. They were brilliant. I had a call from, from actually from, from MOD to say that they could do it in six days. And uh, chuffed a bit. So, I mean, I, I have absolutely total, total respect for the MOD, um, for the employer that I worked for for 27 years. I had a great time. They looked after me all the way through. And even at the end, you know, when I asked for, for um, a non-compliant PBR, 
uh, they were happy to oblige and I'm very grateful to them and to the MOD. I mean, the MOD is a very eminent employer. Um, the Army is a very eminent employer. And, uh, you know, I'm on record as saying that uh, I'm very grateful to them for making it so easy for me at that time. And James, I mean, I, this is going off topic um, slightly, but a, a lot of people when they leave the military, you know, and I, I've certainly found this myself to, to a, perhaps a, a lesser extent than, than some people, but, you know, there is this, um, this transition period um, and sometimes it is difficult to get used to uh, life outside of the military. Now, you, you've actually already touched on this, that, that Parliament is an institution in and of itself. Uh, do you think you've you've swapped one institution for another, or are you currently in transition, uh, you know, out of the army? How, how do you feel? It's a strange question to answer. Um, I mean, I would not say that I've been immune to the whole process. Um, it's been difficult at times. Um, but having stepped from one thing straight to the next, of course, I've done no resettlement. I've done no termination leave. I've had no opportunity at all. Um, and literally, I mean, it's a great story, on the Saturday morning, having been discharged from the army, six days after first being selected as a candidate, when I started knocking on doors, um, and I was, I was asked by the army not to engage at all politically for that entire week, even having been selected as a candidate. Um, I was good as my word, and, uh, and I didn't do that. When I first started knocking wow. on doors, there was a sudden shock after six days notice I was a civilian um, but to be frank I think that um, if you're focused and if you're occupied as I was at the time um, with a very clear focus that was getting elected four weeks later um, I, I was okay um, but to answer the question James no I, I, I've had um, I've had no opportunity at all to even sit down and think about the fact that after 27 years as a regular officer uh, I'm now a civilian um, but, well I, uh, I, I, oh, go on. sorry I, sorry, I, I, well, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to sort of be, a, you know, intrude on on that um, reflection. But obviously, you, you've served twenty seven years. Um, can you talk our listeners through some of your experiences? You know, perhaps your career path. You know, how you how you decided on um, on going down the the route of becoming an army officer. What the sort of political situation was like at the time, and then some of your experiences. I mean, obviously, you mentioned Iraq in two thousand and nine, but it's it's not all, you know, tours and, and medals. You know, there's there's lots lots that goes into becoming a, an army officer and lots that goes along with the the kind of career path. Could you you know would you mind sort of going back over some of that stuff for us now? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's impossible to compress you know that long career into into a few minutes uh, on a podcast. But but what I would say is that uh, I found that I enjoyed my career in the army a lot more the more senior that I became. Uh, in other words, I. I you know, as difficult as it was at the beginning, going through Sandhurst, leaving home, university, and, and getting into this new way of life, um, which took you away at the top of the hat. Um, I, I grew to love it. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I have huge pride in my service, but, but certainly highlights. Uh, commanding a regiment was a highlight. I've commanded 27 regiments in the Aldershot Royal Logistic Corps, uh, biggest unit in the British Army and the most diverse. And that, that was a real highlight. I've served in the Falklands, uh, did a year in Sierra Leone, um, did two tours of Iraq, uh, did uh, a tour in Bosnia, uh, lots of time with, um, with, with NATO. But well, interestingly enough, um, most of my career has been spent at what we call E2, so outside of my cat badge, um, the RLC. So I'm much more of a generalist um, than I probably am a specialist. 
but uh, clearly a very proud logistician, very proud to have worn my RLC cap badge. Um, met some amazing people, amazing friends, and it has been the opportunity of a lifetime, says the man who's just become an MP. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I have no regrets at all, and anybody listening to this who's thinking about uh, a new career, I can recommend the armed forces um, massively to anyone. It's given me confidence and opportunities and friendships uh, and, 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 you know, a grounding that, uh, that I'll use the rest of my life. And um, I, I think that also, you know, members of the military are perfectly geared to going into politics because a lot of the skills that you need in politics are the skills that you do home um, during one's military career. Um, so I feel very blessed, James, and, and very fortunate to be sitting here now. Well, and, and that, that comes across in, in your answer and you're incredibly humble. I mean, a, a career as, as long as you've had and, and as successful as you had, you know, is it takes a, a, takes a lot to carve that out. And those aren't things that you just get taught in training. They are, to a certain extent, innate characteristics. And also, as, as you said about your transition, it's about your focus and about what you want to achieve and then going after it. And it sounds like um, at every point you've you've done that. Um, so, you know, and, and, and here you are. Congratulations. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned that um, sort of serving in the military sets you up uh, well for political life. Could you go, sort of dive into that a little bit more? You know, what what sort of um, elements of your, your previous service um, have helped you both on the campaign trail and then perhaps also in Parliament? Because I know that that's something that our listeners will be interested in. Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, actually, in many ways. I think, I think the, the, the negative is the fact that when you work for an organisation that is fundamentally apolitical for so long, it, it's very difficult to suddenly become political overnight. Um, so so mm. I have weaned myself into the job um, by, by not saying a great deal, just by learning, watching, listening, um, building confidence over the last six months uh, and, and getting to a point where you know, I'm comfortable with the political process. And, and my word, Westminster is the most extraordinary institution because it, it's not based upon logic. Um, the processes are very old. It's very dogmatic. Um, I mean, the, the terminology is very difficult. You know, what is a motion? What is an amendment? Um, you know, there is a definite skill involved um, in respect of, of learning how Parliament works. So, you know, rather than go in head first, as people do, I've, I've probably stood back a little bit and just tried to learn the job. Um, but in terms of the skills, I mean, I think certainly if you are leading an organisation, um, how you behave and how you look and how you come across is really important. Um, you know, humility is a skill that we, that we develop in the army, and rightly so. Um, the best leaders are always the most humble leaders. Um, and of course, you know, th there's, there's nothing that sets an officer apart from a soldier apart from the fact that the officer is there to serve his soldiers and to lead his soldiers. Um, and it's a fine distinction. And I think in many ways, uh, with that distinction, um, going into Parliament and, and working as part of a team and, and having to build credibility and respect is what you have to do in the army. Um, but also what's interesting is this. I think there's a sense of, there's a sense of self um, which which politicians have. Um, and I've been quite clear from the outset that, that this is not about me. Um, you know, me being a politician is a platform for doing good things in my view, but it's not about me. Um, it's about what you bring to the party. And, and, I, and I sense, and I'm being very candid now, I sense that there is a, a, a dichotomy with some people um, 
between image and substance. Uh, and as somebody who's not been focused on image much in my life, um, you know, I think substance is much more important. And I think it's that substance of service life, which, which is the important ingredient for going forward as a politician. Well, that is su that was such an interesting answer that I've actually made notes for myself so that I can I can have a think about and take forward that the the issue of image and substance. I think that is absolutely fascinating. Um, you talked um, in that answer about how uh, you, your political involvement, your political engagement, and the position you're at now is is not about you, and it's about um, both service, but also to form a kind of platform. Um, from from this platform, what are your kind of key political focus areas, um, and you know whether they're constituency in nature or whether they're national in nature? Um, and over the last sort of six months, have you had any opportunity to to sort of get involved in in those um, and and try and actualize uh, what you know why you're in politics? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an issue that I'm grappling with right now. I mean, I think, you know, I've asked the question, why am I in politics? What am I here to do? Well, I think, first and foremost, I'm here to serve um, the constituents. I mean, I'm very proud of Bracknell and everyone within it. And of course, mm -hmm. Bracknell consists of uh, Crowthorne, uh, Finch Hampstead, Sandhurst, Woking and Without. Um, so it's, it's East Berkshire. Um, there's a great military pedigree here, actually. Lots of veterans are serving here. So it, it's a nice place to be on a military platform. Um, but of course, I, I think a politician has has the obligation to do what he or she feels is the right thing to do um, by using the judgment that uh, has been built up over many years and therefore to apply that carefully and i and i think that uh, as a politician you can't jump up and down with every single issue is impossible and nor into um, discrete issues to get behind um, i think it's about loyalty it's about being loyal to the government being loyal to the party um, but of course, loyalty comes at a price. Um, it's not a blank check. And if, if legislation goes through into the House for a second or third reading and there's a vote on it, you have to make sure that you're voting on it for the right reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I've not been a rebel yet, but I'd certainly use my own judgment in making sure that what I went for was, was, was the right thing to do. Um, but in terms of now, uh, I'm quite involved in this campaign now to get the uh, Foreign Commonwealth soldiers recognised in terms of residency. Um, there's been a feature in the media this week, uh, in the Guardian in particular, regarding the, the Fijian private soldier who left the army 10 years ago and it's now been presented with a £27,000 bill from the NHS for treatment. That is quite wrong. I'm quite clear in my mind that if you serve in the military, if you take the Queen's shilling, wear the uniform, go on operations, there can be, and there must be, no division on how you are treated after leaving the army. So I'm quite passionate about veterans' issues. I've just taken uh, on the, the chair of the Armed Forces Covenant All-Party Parliamentary Group. I'm also involved with the veterans' group. Um, plus, my other role, of course, is to get involved with, with, um, with, with what my constituents ask me to do. So motor neuron disease is one I'm involved with, uh, Southwestern Railway. Um, I'm involved with, with other local issues, mental health is a big one, homelessness. Um, so it, it's about doing what you think is right as an individual politician, but also getting involved with what's important to the constituency as well. Well, that does it. I mean, and, and what's interesting about your answer is that, that just the breadth of what you 
of both your own political instincts and, and the way that you view politics in your role, but also of the number of, of totally different and massively broad topics that there are out there that your constituents care about. I mean, how do you prepare for that? Are you, do you, do you, do you, are you constantly reading broadsheets or, or, you know, are you checking the Commons Library or is it, do you, do you rely more on kind of advice? What, what, how, do, how, do you, how do you try and get a handle on, you know, Southwestern Railway, mental health, homelessness, and the army covenant and you know com foreign, foreign commonwealth soldier welfare you know how, how do you stay on top of all this well if you've been a special advisor for the last 10 years uh, working you know around or in westminster um, these issues aren't new to you and of course you learn them as you go having come in cold as i did um, it has been quite a steep learning curve um, but you gain the knowledge that you need by talking to people by reading by asking advice um, the broadsheets are very useful, um, but also going to the, um, um, you know, going to the, the library and going to the organisations within Westminster that give you advice. Um, so the research unit, for example, is a classic one that's been very useful for us. I've also got three excellent members in the team, um, Jerry Barber, John Woodburn, Katie Craven, all are experienced people, all have particular interests. And you'd be therefore quite surprised by how much expertise that there is in a team that I've got. Um, but like any good military person, if you don't know the answer, you go and find out. And, and you know, it is about time on the internet. It's about research. It's about getting your head up to speed very quickly with what you need to know. Um, but again, I think military personnel by nature, when they leave the armed forces, they think perhaps they don't know enough. They undersell themselves. They, they think that perhaps their CV um, comes across in a certain way that they can't do that job. Well, no, uh, I'm very, very clear that armed forces personnel, whoever you are, whatever you've done, are very employable and are very agile. And actually, it's no coincidence that uh, the job market, you know, at the moment is very, very, very happy to snap these people up because of the skills they bring. So nothing's difficult, nothing's insurmountable. Um, we've had a clear vision of what we need to do as an office, and I'm very happy to take that forward. Well, speaking of taking it forward, um, are you, um, you, I mean, how, how to put this uh, without putting you on the spot or making things awkward, um, are you con more constituency focused or are you looking at climbing the greasy pole? Um, you know, how, how ambitious are you and, and what, are you, what are you hoping to achieve in the next sort of five to 10 years? Um, it's a really good question, James, and I'm, I'm just chuckling because I'm just wondering how to answer the question. First and foremost, I was uh, elected by the people of Bracknell to be their Member of Parliament. So my, my job, you know, above all else, is to represent them in Westminster. Um, so, so I think that, um, that, that, is, that is what I'm there to do. If you are lucky enough to be spotted, if you are spied perhaps as a potential Parliamentary Secretary or even as a Minister, then great, we'll consider that when the time comes. But I feel very blessed in the sense that I'm of an age where I've had a successful first career. I've got nothing really to prove. I don't really owe anybody anything apart from my constituents to whom I owe everything. And um, I'm therefore very happy to go with the flow and to see what comes along. Um, but what's quite obvious now, James, and you'll know this yourself, with, with the 109, um, You've got a broad cross-section of members of parliament. Some are very young. I think Sarah um, Brickliffe is 26, 27 years old. 
and you've got uh, new members of parliament that are in their late 50s. So it's a huge broad section. There's great quality in that group. Um, talent's already shining through um, in many cases. And, and I think as much as the prime minister is focused on giving opportunities for women, and quite rightly so, because parliament's always been a very male-dominated um, you know, environment, I, I think that there are opportunities for the brightest and the best to come through, irrespective of age, creed, colour, background. Um, so I'm very happy that meritocracy will always shine through. Um, and I, I agree I wholeheartedly, for what it's worth, I wholeheartedly agree with your sentiments. Um, I mean, that actually leads us quite nicely onto my, my next and, and possibly my final question. It depends on, on how, how much you want to go into it. But I, I was sort of thinking to myself about, um, you know, speaking with um, Boris on the campaign trail when he was campaigning to be leader um, in, in the summer of 2019 and about some of the commitments that he made to the armed forces and about more than, more than the actual, his commitment, more about his personal sort of his feelings about the armed forces and the country in general. Um, I wondered if you felt that the current government had sort of fulfilled its, um, its sort of manifesto pledges and whether you think that there is going to be much on the horizon for um, veterans or for those serving in the military? Um, yeah, it's a very fair question. I've met the Prime Minister on numerous occasions now. We've had good conversations and he's a man of his word. Um, he gets a very bad press and wrongly so. Mm. Um, his feet are on the ground. He means what he says. Uh, he, he is absolutely clear in his levelling up opportunities for all agenda. And that's what attracts me to politics. Um, so the blue collar conservative, one nation conservative groups that I belong to, um, you know, I'm passionate about their message, which is you know, creating a fairer society where, where everybody has those opportunities of, of progressing as, as they mm. wish to. So to answer your question directly, um, I was elected on you know, a, a pretty broad manifesto in December last year. Um, I've signed up the manifesto. Um, I have signed up to the Queen's speech and therefore I will support you know, the legislation that comes into parliament um, because it's what the government's promised to do. In terms of the armed forces, uh, I'm, I'm pretty clear that, that the offer is pretty good. Um, both inside Westminster and outside. And what I mean by that is that there are 45 members of parliament who've had military service. That is quite a big cohort of individuals. Um, you've got myself and Bob Stewart at the sort of upper end of that. But right the way through parliament, you've got that sympathy and experience, which is very, very important. And we're also a very powerful cohort. Um, the, the, the four ministers who run the MOD, for example, have all got military service. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable that, that, that the army the RAF and the Navy do have a voice in Westminster, that it's a powerful group um, and that I, I can't see, you know, policy going through um, which serves the detriment of the armed forces. The armed forces and covenant will be in statute hopefully later this year. Johnny Mercer is a great friend of mine. He's doing some great work on behalf of veterans and covenant across the UK and I support him. We've got legacy being sorted at the moment with Northern Ireland and, and, and vexatious claims. So I happen to think that the future looks very good for the armed forces. Well, and that perhaps to a certain extent is reflected in the, um, the, the rates of um, sort of, you know, people applying because they, I know that, you know, they, they, there was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of dip um, a few years ago, but I think that the, the application rate is sort of steadily climbing and, and the army 
having worked a bit on its image, certainly the army having worked a bit on its image, I know that the RAF and the Navy also have had, um, you know, large sort of widespread campaigns. Um, you know, the, the future should be looking bright. Do you see the, um, the latest uh, review as perhaps causing some concerns? It was slated for July, but it's been, it's been pushed back now. Um, but, you know, I fear that with all of these, you know, reviews with, you know, each time, each iteration of these plans, um, sort of the, the buzzword is kind of cuts, um, you know, should, should the military be worried? Um, it's a very fair question. I mean, we are living in a very, you know, fiscally demanding time. Um, even before the COVID-19 outbreak, um, you know, departments were competing for a share of the pot. And, um, you know, the MOD must present a persuasive case on its own merits for what it wants to do in the future. Um, so what do I think? Well, I think at the moment, the armed forces, again, are in a pretty good place. Um, you know, COVID-19 has been good for the armed forces. Lots of very positive media coverage on what, on what they're doing. Um, yeah. The fact, once again, that the Army, Navy, RAF have stepped up, you know, at almost unlimited liability to provide support to the civil power is quite impressive. Uh, and they've been very, very agile with learning new skills. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I can think back to that wonderful example of when um, the flooding occurred in Somerset levels. Um, literally, the entire landscape was flooded and a group of Royal Marines turned up in a minibus, jumped out, put their green berries on. They surveyed the scene and thought, nothing much we can do here. Got back in the minibus and drove home. But the fact that they'd been there there was a sense of, oh, great, the military are here, we're fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a huge reassurance piece there. Uh, and I was personally involved with, with foot and mouth many years ago, the fuel crisis. Um, I've been involved with a lot of what we call MACP activity throughout my career. I was a task force commander in Surrey when I was a commanding officer. And that link between the military and civil society is really, really important. And do I see an enhanced role for the military at home? Absolutely, yes. I mean, this nonsense about full cost reimbursement. What rubbish. You know, let's get the military out there wearing uniforms, wearing their berets proudly, waving the flag. Let's see them doing stuff in society as part of society. Let's, let's re-establish that bond between the military and society because I think the Army, Navy and the RAF have got a huge amount to offer. Well, James, on that stirring note, I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, hugely, hugely appreciative. Um, I'm sorry that I missed you on the campaign force um, uh, webinar that you did, but we'll, we'll hope to hear from you soon. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to say? Any, any sort of talking points or topics? Well, James, just to sort of correct you, if I may, um, I've been invited to do the campaign force webinar, um, but I didn't do it. Um, oh, it is now rescheduled oh, for, for Monday. No, it's on Monday. Um, right, well, I, this I was, sounds great. Okay. I mean, I was actually, I was actually gazumped by Dan Jarvis, um, but uh, he's a very eminent man. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he, he's, he's, a, he's a force for good as well. And, um, and again, just, you know, really final word is what's nice about Parliament at the moment is that, you know, we are working together. There is cross-party consensus on many issues. I c commend the opposition. Um, for getting behind the government um, in terms of the response to COVID-19. Clearly, you know, there is a need to hold to account, but, but actually it's been quite nice to work alongside members of the, um, you know, opposing parties. And Dan Jarvis is a perfect example of a, a politician who's there for the right reasons. And, um, you know, for those who listened to him on the webinar, I think last night, it was a very good one. So uh, 
you know, I, I think we're in a good place. I think politics is in a good place at the moment. And, uh, and I think that the future looks pretty good, notwithstanding COVID-19. But of course, we cannot take that for granted. And there's still work to do. Well, James, I think, you know, a lot of the listeners who will have listened to this uh, podcast will, will feel the same and will feel gratified that um, a leader with your experience and your vision uh, and your values uh, is in Parliament representing the constituents of Bracknell and representing all of our interests um, at a sort of national level. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, have a fantastic bank holiday weekend and uh, we'll hope to speak to you uh, in the future thanks so much james and uh, do please keep up the good work thanks james bye-bye cheers our next guest is donna gavin donna served in the royal signals the digital and cyber branch of the british army for a decade serving around the world and deploying to afghanistan she left the army two years ago as a major during her service, she specialised in deploying strategic telecommunications across conflict zones and delivering surveillance, intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities. Since leaving the army, she's now a cybersecurity consultant. Donna, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're really, really grateful for you giving up a bit of your time to speak to the uh, members and friends of Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces. Um, you uh, are a former Royal Signaller. Can you tell us a bit more about what the Royal Signals uh, does? Absolutely, James, and thank you for having me. Um, always quite keen to talk about and champion the Royal Signals. So for 10 years I served, um, and the Royal Signals in effect is the digital and cyber branch of the British Army. And to bring that to life a little bit more, if you can imagine in the event that the British Army might deploy uh, normally to a conflict zone or a peace support zone, um, when they arrive, they need to be able to talk to each other. So be that at the very low level where soldiers need to talk to other soldiers to communicate what they're doing over a small distance. Indeed, from that soldier, that local commander to talk up to their operational commander that might be 10 kilometres away or 100 kilometres away or indeed back in the UK. They all need to be able to talk to each other. And so what we do is we bring communication systems with us because the one planning assumption is that uh, we can't use in-place communications infrastructure for some very obvious reasons. Sometimes it's just not there or sometimes it's just not safe or secure enough for us to talk sensitively to each other. And so we bring our own communications infrastructure. So in effect, it's a bit like uh, BT OpenReach for the army. Uh, but it's quite tricky. It requires satellites and attachments on hilltops and so on. And we're often the first people to arrive and the last people to leave. And as the old saying goes, uh, no comms, no bombs. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've said it myself a few times in, in definitely more austere environments than sat here in my living room. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your uh, particular skills and what you got up to when you were in the military? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I served right across the world. I spent time in Germany and lots of time in Afghanistan. I deployed to different operational theatres and all different guises. Um, and in fact, what was common to all was um, the digital technological front of it. So sometimes it's about deploying um, conventional communication systems over distance, and that could be up to 100 kilometres. Uh, but sometimes, because we're the digital technologists, sometimes we involve ourselves in surveillance systems and the real technical geekery part of the army. And in the latter life, my last post was as the commander of communications for our intelligence units. And so what that meant uh, was we were deploying um, really sensitive communication systems 
uh, but also some cybersecurity too, and how we secure our systems and how we keep our people and our messaging safe. Um, it sounds absolutely fascinating, um, and I've, I've obviously only only dealt with that at much much kind of lower level. And it sounds like you, you've had um, a really interesting experience um, throughout your career. Um, I mean, it's sort of speaking in a kind of longer term, um, the Royal Signals is celebrating its 100th birthday. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about how the Signals was founded and, and you know, also perhaps go on to talk about where you think uh, the Royal Signals and their, their job role might go over the next, say, 100 years? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to put it really simply, uh, the Royal Signals started life um, as, as did many of the technical branches of the army and the military inside the Royal Engineers. And that, in effect, was where the professional officer branch was. Anything that was a bit clever and a bit technical was sort of grouped together under one professional banner. And so those in those days, in those heady days, they used things like telegraph machines to communicate um, you know, written communications over a battlefield. And that progressed to a thing called running the line, where we had physical connections between all communications. So our soldiers had one of the most dangerous jobs and they would have to you know, run line, just like your BT Openreach guy does, but in set under fire. Um, and so as this sort of all progressed, um, it became... Um, or a wider understanding about how important communications was, it then became its own standalone entity, which is when the Royal Signals was formed 100 years ago. Um, and if, if, in my humble opinion, um, you know, it's the area of growth inside the British Army, because not only is it about communications, it's all about uh, information warfare and how we occupy and deliver communications on scale uh, and how we use satellites and so on. So it's one of the growth areas in the British Army. And yes, indeed, it is 100 years old, which is um, a really important, I think, occasion to mark. And speaking of uh, an important occasion to mark, how will you be marking it? Well, yeah, really good question. So um, we, uh, we wanted to mark it properly. And there were a number of events um, that happened pre-COVID or organised pre-COVID uh, festivals all around the UK. And it was supposed to be a really big event. And it's really sad for organisations like um, the Royal Signals who for them it's you know a really important day to mark, but they can't do it in the same way. And so in true military style, I wanted something hard, right? So they said yeah. to take part, you can do uh, if everybody could walk or run a hundred kilometers. And in, in their view, they tried to make it as open as possible, saying across June. Now, of course, when my competitive streak came out and said, well, I don't want to do it over a month, I'll do it over a weekend. Um, and so I decided to myself to, to do 100 kilometers in a long weekend so it will be more like three days um and i'm probably going to go somewhere cheeky but this time i'm not going to carry more than my own body weight like i used to when i served uh, i'm probably just going to make it a little bit more enjoyable and carry just enough for the day and so do you know where are you going to be doing this well the uh, gold plan is to go to the Lake District, but we're going to see how the um, rules and privileges change over time. And if it's permissive, then we'll go to the Lake District because um, it's a really good area to kind of mark up some big distance on. Um, if I can't, I'm lucky enough to live in the Cotswolds, so I'll stay closer to home and um, and be able to find, we'll find some routes somewhere around here. Uh, and I'll bring my dog on the way. Um, I'll be talking about um, our journey on Twitter. Uh, and I've also asked people if they can uh, to sponsor us because uh, I'm doing this for a good cause. Um, I'm doing it for the Royal Signals charity. And what they do is uh, provide support for vulnerable Royal Signals soldiers, serving and veterans, uh, because sometimes service life can be tough. 
um, and not everybody has a really positive experience. So for have, having charities that look after those people that don't have the best experience and are a little bit vulnerable is really important. Uh, I'm about halfway to my target. Um, so if anybody, if any of your listeners uh, feel like they can spare a few pounds, then please do sponsor me uh, whilst I walk 100 kilometres. Um, I'm now a civilian, so I'm not as tough or as um, fit as I once was. So oh, I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> Well, uh, Donna, that's um, that sounds like a really, really good challenge um, for a really good cause to celebrate a really worthwhile corps in the British Army. Um, I will make sure that I put the um, fundraising link into the notes for this podcast and which uh, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces will, of course, be following you on your journey. Um, so everyone can have a check out of our Facebook page and our Twitter um, and we'll be following you and encouraging you. So good luck with your challenge and thank you so much for joining us today. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks, Donna. Bye-bye. Our third and final guest is Sean Howlett. Sean currently works in financial services and has been a member of CFAF since its inception. He's also in the reserves. He's joining our operations team to help deliver events, discussions and content over the next year ahead. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Um, for those who haven't met you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional and political journey? Hi, James. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on here today. Yeah, so uh, I'm Sean Howlett. I'm sort of joining the um, operations team uh, at Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces at the kind invitation of yourself, James. Um, background, really. So um, sort of uh, professionally, I've um, you know, started out um, the beginnings of a career in the um, financial services industry, training to become a financial advisor. Uh, so that's sort of my day job presently as well. Uh, my political journey, um, so I sort of um, came on board with sort of um, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces uh, uh, almost 18 months ago now. Um, spoke to James through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Nick Clark, um, who's also on the board um, and sort of got connected that way. And, uh, you know, you brought me along to the uh, launch event and uh, we sort of hit it off from there. Um Outside of uh, sort of Friends of the Armed Forces territory, I've sort of supported my uh, local Conservative MP, um, Stephen McPartland, uh, MP of Stevenage, and um, and some of the associating constituencies around there. And uh, further to that, and obviously uh, joined the campaign trail uh, with you guys uh, at the last general election in December, uh, namely helping out uh, in Enfield Southgate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've, you've been a stalwart supporter of ours from from the, the start in 2018. I think I actually met you at our launch event. Um, kind of on that basis, you, you've been to quite a few events. Um, which one would you say was your favourite? And if there are members or people listening who aren't um, members yet, you know, why why would why should people want to come to our events and engage with our organisation? So that's. Um... So it's a really good question. I'm stuck between two events there. So there was the launch event, which the background of that was obviously, you know, CFAF, this new organisation, you know, supporting sort of veteran uh, Conservative Party members uh, or, and also, you know, serving if they're a reservist as well. Um, 
And then, you know, you had that where we had this sort of great, you know, ambition and plan for the future. And then we also had our fundraising event back in February this year, uh, which was fantastic. And to see where we'd come over those uh, 12, 13 months to that point in February was amazing. And, you know, the fundraising event, that was fantastic. We had Sean Bailey, our, you know, our candidate for mayor of London there. We had Penny Mordaunt, uh, you know, former Secretary of State for Defence there. And also uh, some of the new intake like Elliot Cohen, who was, um, you know, fantastic as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to actually say what's my favourite when you've got two, you know, really decent uh, level events such as that. Well, that's well, you know, that that's sitting on the fence. I think I, I mean, I agree because I, I uh, remember organising the first event and being really concerned that no one would turn up and then being absolutely inundated with um, really some quite high profile people. And actually, I got, I got into a little bit of trouble because um the 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 very kind host of the evening actually said to me you know if we've got a secretary of state coming then you really need to let us know because there's sort of security implications and and, and we need to sort of tie in with their their um their sort of security team um so there, there you go that was a that was a first work on point for me but again as you said it was it was really pleasant at the fundraiser to to see lots of people that kind of keep you know keep turning up to our events who really do support the the um organization through thick and thin people like carl hunter and and uh, tony heath um, and Rabinder, of course, but then also, as you said, you know, we had we had some of the new MPs who come in who are, you know, personal friends of mine and, and no doubt yours. Um, you know, people like Alicia Kearns, um, who was on the the podcast uh, last month, um, and Gaga Mahindra. Um, you know, we had uh, Felicity um, Buchan as well came. You know, we had a, a really good, really good um, mixture of people. Um, so yeah, and and long long may it continue. I mean, uh, we've. We've had chats together and, and, you know, I'm very grateful for you joining me to kind of do some of the nitty gritty stuff. Where do you see yourself focusing your energy over the next um, year or two and what do you hope to bring to the organisation? Well, I certainly think um, the plan going forward, as you know, you and I have um, discussed operationally is post COVID. So, you know, uh, COVID-19 aside, uh, so we're aiming to obviously get our Christmas event uh, up and running uh, around Christmas time. Uh, to you know get people back on board get some decent guest speakers there and then in the new year start that cycle of events again with those four sort of keynote events each year starting with the fundraiser uh, in February or March time uh, you know a panel discussion event with hopefully a drinks reception attached to that as well um, uh, probably summertime and then also the um, typical conference event which you know as you saw last year which um you organized you, could, you know you got ben wallace there which you know that was a you know, pretty decent event from what i heard on that um and then uh, you know we've been very london centric we need to admit that that's mainly because you know the the people who founded cfap have been you know sort of london home home counties based uh so we need to start looking at sort of regionalizing um as sort of at least a first step um to decentralization in a sense um you know get on board with sort of uh, satellite organisations out in the regions and sort of push out that way, have local offices um, if possible and host local events if, you know, if need be. And that way you've got sort of a CFAF campaigning force out in the regions that can help local associations that way. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you and I have discussed this at length, but I think that that's very positive if you're a member and you're sort of listening and, and thinking about what the plan is for the future. You know, that 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 that's it. And, uh, and I think it's something that, everyone can get behind and, and look forward to. Um, finally, Sean, I, I've got one last question for you. I don't, don't want to sort of throw, throw you a, a difficult one, but 
we've obviously we've got the SDSR that's been pushed back. Um, uh, but in the Times this weekend, um, I, I was reading about this uh, potential four billion black hole in the funding because of the funding linked to the GDP. And if there's a recession, you know, obviously GDP will go down. Um, you know, just just very generally, um, what what do you think the future of the uh, the future outlook for the armed forces is, and and UK global security more generally? Well, I mean, we we, we live in dangerous times at the moment, uh, and the threat is coming um, from all uh, sorts of spaces at the moment. And now more than ever, do we need to sort of you know at the very least maintain defence spending, and at least you know no matter what, maintain that uh, NATO commitment uh, of two percent as well. Because um, if, if we don't, it will not encourage other NATO members who have not been pulling their weight uh, to do so. Um, in respect of the black hole itself, yeah, I mean, it always seems that, you know, defence spending is always uh, the one in the news for having sort of um, a black hole in their finances, uh, mainly due to bad procurement contracts uh, and things like that. But I think no matter what happens, defence cannot be... Uh, when the government uh, reassessed the, you know, the fight, the nation's finances post-COVID, that defence must not be a sort of low-hanging fruit that government can attack. It, it, you know, we need to maintain and shore up defence spending. You know, maybe tactically uh, reallocate funding, but definitely do not start cutting. Um, we 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 have a, you know, a bleak threat, or you know, in in terms of sort of. Uh, what's out there on the horizon at the moment. So, yeah, I, I certainly think you know, defence spending needs to be shored up. Thank you very much. I, I mean, I, I don't think there are many people who disagree with you uh, on that, Sean. We've just got to try and keep pressure up on the government to, to, to make sure that happens. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Sean. I think is that, that's it from me. Is there anything else from you you'd like to say? Uh, no, no, it's great. No, thank you for having me on this podcast today. And, uh, yeah, thanks for getting me involved and uh, I look forward to meeting uh, a lot of people who may be listening out there uh, very soon. You've been listening to the CF Armed Forces podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and you join us for next month. Goodbye.